You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. It was almost like I took a bullet and I didn't die. You know, one of us could strip. And then she said, and I can't because I wear glasses. What you made became the riot girl thing for filmmaking. There wasn't anything like it. Do I include that or do I protect myself from Roseanne Barr? Starting over. Do over, do over. All right. Hello. 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 And welcome to Pop Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. And I'm Callie Watts. And we're both editors at Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today our guest is someone whose work has meant so much to me for such a long time. And I am so excited that this day has finally arrived. Miranda July is a filmmaker, artist, and writer whose feminist DIY punk style evolved out of the same Riot Girl era that birthed Bust Magazine. She appeared on our cover in the fall of 2007, and her books include No One Belongs Here More Than You, The First Bad Man, and a new huge career-spanning retrospective of her work called Miranda July that just came out in April. She also wrote and directed the incredibly weird and wonderful movies Me and You and Everyone We Know and The Future, and today she's here to talk to us about her latest film, Kajillionaire, which comes out September 25th, which I absolutely adore. As soon as I watched it, I just wanted to watch it all over again immediately. In Kajillionaire, a con artist couple played by Deborah Winger and Richard Jenkins have raised their 26-year-old daughter, played by Evan Rachel Wood, to join them in their desperate life of pathetically petty crimes and scams. It's the only life she's ever known until one day on a flight to their next scheme, the family meets a gorgeous young woman played by Gina Rodriguez and all their lives change forever. I can't wait to talk more about this film and the incredible brain that created it. Welcome Miranda July to our show. Hooray. Hey. Hi. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I know that you must hear this a lot just because of the nature of your work, but the art that you make is so oddly intimate. I get this eerie sensation sometimes that you're writing directly to and about me. It's very <laughs> spooky and weird. And I'm sure you hear that all the time. And that's one reason why I was very fascinated to learn when I was reading your new Prestel book, all about your life and your career, that we have something sort of weird and fundamental in common. And I wanted to tell you about it. Um, we were both raised in households where both parents were writers and you mentioned that when you were growing up in California, your dad would read weirdly grown-up books to you when you were really little, and my dad did that too. You said that your dad read you that true crime Norman Mailer book, The Executioner's Song, when you were little, yeah. which is so weird. And my dad was more gothic. He read me, you know, the original Dracula before I was old enough to read, and lots of, <laughs> you know, really weird books like that. And as a result, I had when I was little, a much larger and also a much weirder and more archaic vocabulary than most of my peers. Having that background certainly helps me in my job now. Like I am grateful for it every day, but I was a weirdo and I was isolated and it was, I had a somewhat harder time communicating with my peers because of the way that I talked, which is, I guess, irony or whatever. But 
social awkwardness is a big theme in your work that I connect to over and over again. So I'd just love to hear some more about how you think your upbringing influenced your trajectory as an artist, especially since Kajillionaire is so much about very, very, very non-traditional parenting. Right. Right. That's funny that your your dad did that too. I mean, now that I'm a parent, I kind of get that at a certain point, you're just like, okay, well, yeah, we can just ju skip ahead here. <laughs> like, I, like I'm getting tired of reading these kids' books. Um, I did, I haven't done that yet, but I read my child, The Giver series. Mm -hmm. My child is eight. And as we got pretty far into it, I was like, this is definitely for like a 12 year old. Mm -hmm. um, there's, uh, but we couldn't stop and we read the whole, all four books in the series. So um, I don't know. It's also, it's like, a, um, I mean, of course the parent is responsible, but I think the child, I think probably you and I both were like, no, keep reading. Yeah. <laughs> this is interesting. This isn't for kids, you know? And so it's, you're kind of complicit in something and you feel sort of special and, mm -hmm. and it is, I think, pretty harmless. It's, it's sort of elevating. It's, it's taking you seriously. And, and there's a lot of enthusiasm that comes from the parent who is so engaged, right, you know? Right. And so I think ultimately like what we got was like, this stuff is fascinating. You can make a whole world that, that, you know, makes, I mean, I have points when I'm reading to my child, like they're used to like looking up at me and seeing like, is mama crying? Aww. And I often am crying when I'm, Aww. when I'm reading, cause I'm so moved by something. And and I realized like, oh, that in addition to the books themselves, that's one thing I'm passing on very viscerally and which was passed on to me, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, this sense that like, in a way, this is what really matters. Like this is like, we don't, like we're not going to church. We're not um, kind of complying in various other ways. Uh, <laughs> As, as citizens, um, but we do revere things that come from the outside world, you know, and, and it's, it's um, a lot of them are books. It's so funny because we're both <laughs> surrounded. I, we're on Zoom right now mm -hmm. as well as uh, audio and like you're literally in like a womb made out of books and <laughs> I have all these books behind me. So like, I swear I have wasn't clear enough. Yeah, yeah, I know <laughs> you have not in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like a little cooler about it. You don't need everyone to know. Right. Low key book. <laughs> yeah. The line that struck um, me the most in the film was when Richard Jenkins said to Evan Rachel Wood, we always thought it would be insulting to treat you like a child. And I, right. and I, I know it's, it yeah. kicked me like right in the gut. Like I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. <laughs> it's I, a double-edged thing, yeah. right? It's like, it's like a compliment. Like you are your own person, you know? Um, but also then you didn't ever have that mm -hmm. and you might still need that part. Like you got some other things, but you might still need to be reparented in, in a few areas. I mean, I think probably everyone does. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, I mean, Aldolio, I don't want to give stuff away, but is kind of reparented. Uh, and it, what uh, a great know, name, kind of, by the way. 
Old Dolio. Old Dolio. I know it just rolls off my tongue now. I never think about it. Like... <laughs> Did you make it up yeah. or is that like a, a person that existed at some point? Well, my it came to my friend in a dream. She texted <laughs> oh my me. Gosh. <laughs> she texted me, OMG, I had a dream last night that you and Mike gave birth to 10 kittens. And then she proceeded to write down all of their names. And the only other name I remember was marijuana. <laughs> one of them was named marijuana. But I, old Dolio, I was one of those. Old Dolio was one of them. And I remember like immediately writing it down in my like file of things that I might want to use for my work. Um, and, uh, and for a little while it was like, is this going to be distracting? And then I was like, no, you build around that. It's like a monument that signals a lot. Yeah, the story and of yes, the name was great. Eventually, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Eventually we get around to ex explaining it somewhat. Yeah. <laughs> The chemistry between the actors in Kajillionaire is really electric and exciting, and it feels like at times almost dangerous to watch. The, you said in the new book that when you were making this film, you realized that you always thought writing was the most precise medium, but making Kajillionaire, you realized there is some magical, accidental, unconscious frisson that happens in collaboration that's necessary to create the sort of jagged dream logic you need to really get to precisely what you want to express. I would love for you to tell me more about how this realization came about and how did working with this specific um, foursome help you articulate what you wanted to express? Right, right. I mean, I think it has a lot to do with control this issue. It's like, if, if you're if you're trying to be precise about getting at kind of unspeakable feelings in life, well, it's not like there's a, a tool or a practice that does that, mm -hmm. that you can be really precise about. You They're know? unspeakable um, for a reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I do really believe in writing. I mean, I can't, you know, it's like I, I'm writing, you know, something now, but, but partly why I like writing is because I have so much control, right? Um, it, it's as good as I am able to make it, um, which has its limits, but at least it's under my control. Whereas filmmaking, it really is collaborative. Like I, and I have traditionally been really, really precise. And I was with this movie too. Um, you know, everyone has to say the lines as they are written. Like it's not an improvised movie. I have like a really clear vision of what everyone looks like and so forth. But you're also hiring people to take your thing and just absolutely fill it with their soul and run away with it. And mm -hmm. um, in the same way that happens like in relationships, you know, and falling in love in all kinds of the best out of control things that we have in life. And, um, and I think what I was realizing with this movie as I was editing it and kind of, you know, you have things that didn't quite turn out how you planned them both for the better and seemingly for the worse. And you're fitting this puzzle together. And in moments you can feel very despondent. Like, is this just a series of failures? Um, but I think at a certain point I realized, oh, 
maybe this is a form of precision. Like the only way you can represent something as out of control as life itself and relationships itself is by practicing life in relationship as the form, as the medium. Um, and, uh, and that, that seemed to be true to me. I mean, I really, and, and, um, I mean, I've, I've worked with a lot of talented people, but I think, um, it's funny. I remember actually was Hamish Linkletter, my co-star in the last movie, the future. Um, he texted me, you know, we were like, what are you up to these days? And I said, I was, you know, casting a new movie. And he said, I hope you're casting stars. They're stars for a reason. Oh. <laughs> um, which is kind of a wild thing for him to say because I chose him and I actually did have starrier options. And I like, you know, I felt like he was the right person for that role. And it was interesting, like, I don't know if that's true or not true. I mean, I make things with non-actors, you know, so everyone has their magic. But I think for this movie, maybe he was right. Maybe for this movie, there was a kind of um, a magic that came from something that seeing something familiar, you know, these familiar faces uh -huh. in a totally new way. Um, and with a a kind of known director at this point, you know, like uh -huh. it also makes me new, you know, because I've never done that before to that degree. And that, yeah, I, it was nice. It was sort of a vote of confidence from where I would least expect it in a way, uh -huh. like go forth, you know, yeah, go make us proud. Like, a, like a, <laughs> a vote of confidence for team eccentricity that like there was so much known established talent all in one place in the service of something so abstract. Right. That's, that's a sweet way of putting it. Yeah. Cajillionaire <laughs> um, is also boldly, unapologetically and very deliciously, I must say queer. It is, it is a queer movie. Mm -hmm. And in the new book, you said people who have known me a long time have seen me with both women and men. I always feel like I occupy a whole array of sexualities. My work is a way to enact some things that just can't happen because they are impossible or too risque. I was wondering how important it is to you to keep making queer art, especially since you're also in this very public, creative, super couple with director Mike Mills and you have a kid together and people are used to seeing you kind of in a, a hetero way, like when you're in magazines and stuff like that. How important is it to keep your queer identity alive in your work? Well, it's funny, it's it's not so much keeping it alive in my work, it's keeping it, it's just being myself in my life, you know? And I mean, in some ways, like the queer side of it is like the least of it as far as Mike is concerned, you know? It's like, I also spend the night in my own house one night a week. And I, like, there's a lot of rules I don't follow that are kind of the heteronormative domestic paradigm and I I'm like I there's just a lot that's uncomfortable to me about um like pre-made paths of of rightness mm -hmm. of, um and uh so in a way that I tend to think all my work is queer you know I, I think of me and you and everyone we know as also queer because you have this 
relationship between a five-year-old boy and a middle-aged woman like that's that's romantic I don't know to me forever and um, ever yeah yeah I can work forever I mean to me that's like two butts having sex is is queer um anyways um, <laughs> so I guess I um but you're right that it, it's important you're right that I uh it's not something that I could let go of and and be perfectly happy and and be like you, you know it's it's more like a cyclical churning thing um my my queerness i feel like i've become quite abstract in the way i'm talking no about not this. at all uh, um but yeah certainly in my work um and we all find this right there's a there's a creative space that's um much freer it's not totally free like you still have to you and you know the amount of time i spend trying not to hurt people mm. <laughs> um in my work is you know is also part of the process because i am a real person who wants to keep my relationships mm -hmm. and you know i'm trying to care for the people around me but it's it's like a constant um it's a constant unrest and it's fine that way that's how it's meant to be uh-huh Tell me more about, you mentioned the house that you stay in one day a week. I know that I read that this was your house before you met your husband, and now you two have a home elsewhere, but you've always kept your original home that you had before you met him, and it's your studio space, it's where you work, um, you said you spend one day or night a week there. Tell me about that decision to keep that place and what part it plays in your process. Right, I know, I, I feel like it... Um, since I've recently spoken about it more publicly, it sounds a little more avant-garde than it is. It's like, I have an office, like a lot of people <laughs> and um, <laughs> I rent it and I don't, um, I'd love to own it, uh, but I can't afford that. Um, and uh, I've had it for 15 years. Cause when I lived or more 17, when I lived in Portland, my best friend at the time lived in LA and she helped me look for like a place to live. And, uh, um, and this was the place she found and I, she found it like before I got here. Um, and, uh, I just kept it. And yeah, when I met Mike a couple of years later, I sort of very slowly moved in, but I never moved my books. I really just moved my clothes. Everything else is still here. <laughs> um, and, uh, just a lot of stuff, all my archives, everything, and a giant bed. Um, and yeah, it's been my production office for my first movie. I've, I've shot things here. People have stayed here. Collaborators have stayed here. Um, it's really served so many purposes. And certainly when I had a child, I was like, ah, it's now... <laughs> now it's coming into its purpose really like i can just leave and it's just five minutes away from our house um and uh yeah um was saying oh yeah and then the wednesday nights that that started when did that start maybe just just really like a year ago or something i i think my reasoning was like i don't know how i'm gonna write a novel and have this movie come out and the monograph like it just seemed like too much and um and I thought if I could just wake up alone and start <laughs> writing 
one one day a week. And frankly, even mm-hmm. if you're you don't have a child, but you just have a partner, that's hard, you know? Yes. Like, yeah. It's it's not popular to be like pretend someone doesn't exist, you know, <laughs> and try and maintain your your dream space first thing in the morning. Um, although I do that, you know, the other days of the week. Um, I wake up and write down my dream and everyone knows like don't talk to her. She might forget. I do that too. That's Um, something else you have. (laughs) Okay, good. Yeah, it's it's worth it's worth it. Um, Anyways, but that time, I mean, during quarantine, those those Wednesday nights have really kind of been about. I used to start writing that night and then write the next morning, and now I, I, to be honest, I, I often just recover. Mm. You know, like I just catch my breath. and sometimes mm-hmm. I'm just in like a fucking daze Absolutely, for that yeah. night. I'm just like um, sort of walking around in shock. And and then I wake up in the morning and I actually feel like I have my soul and I can write it. <laughs> yeah, I have pretty low stakes at this point. <laughs> As I mentioned before in the intro, the central family unit in Kajillionaire, they get by financially by participating in a truly exhausting network of tiny petty scams in order to not do traditional work the whole family works much much harder than if they had a nine-to-five employment most people want to be cajillionaires that's the dream that's how they get you hooked hooked on sugar hooked on caffeine ha 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 cry 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 me i prefer to just skim so do i there's a lot of symbolism and sort of like an allegory in this family and I wonder how much of it is drawn from your experience as a kid and how much is a meditation on how your work impacts your own kid. It seems kind of like a mixture of both. Right. I mean, it's, to be honest, like I'm not an autobiographical writer. I never have been. Um, uh, I've written one autobiographical short story mm-hmm. ever. Um, so that I, what I find works best is if I find a fiction and usually it just sort of comes to me like I, I wish I could go out and find it but I just more have to like wait for it something that just goes where the characters have some kind of connection to my unconscious such that I'm able to move very intuitively with them and a bunch of like emotional truth comes out through this fiction um, so as far as I can tell like the cocktail that made this ridiculous crime family is yes this um sort of thrifty outsider um vibe that my family had that was not i mean i didn't in any way grow up in a con artist family my parents would be totally horrified if they thought i was going around saying that um uh but there was a lot of anxiety about money Mm. um and um, sometimes a sort of creativity about like how to save literally mm. 25 cents. Um, Got it. And I think for my dad, it almost be- is almost sort of like a little OCD or something. Like it's part of his own. Like those coupon clippers that like get yeah. money back at the end. Right. I mean, we did, we did coupons. Um, like those, uh, what are those that, like extreme couponing yeah. where they like yeah. are so good at coupons that they leave the store with cash. Right. Right. Amazing. I think there's like yeah. a show about them. Yes, there is. Yeah. 
Um, but also like me and my brother watched um, a ton of Mission Impossible, mm. the whole TV show. Um, and that was really, you know, so that the like conning, the like surprise reversals, who can you trust, dodging security cameras, like that's sort of in my DNA. Like I just can never overcome it. Even if I, on some level of no interest in heist movies, like it's too late, it's already in there. Um, and then, yeah, as a punk feminist, um, uh, quasi criminal in Portland, you know, it was a culture of this dubious sort of reclamation of goods um, that I do not stand behind at all now. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's seriously, um, to a certain degree of like entitlement that, that came with that kind of petty thievery, but that also influenced the the movies and the movie in the sense that um, some of those scams are familiar to me, like that luggage scam mm. we did, you know, like me and my friends. That's so smart. Did it. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a scam, but it was very, I was yeah. like, oh. Uh -huh. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> After this movie comes out, all the travel insurance companies are going to change their policies. Yeah, I'm sure they already have. Like, yeah. I'm sure they're hip to that game by now. Yeah. It was good. <laughs> it's good while it lasted. We talked a little bit about me and you and everyone we know. I'd love to revisit it for a second. Um, childhood and specifically the murky world of childhood sexuality was such a huge theme in that movie. I've never really seen it on film in that way before. Um, as you said, in that film, a little boy finds himself in a very complicated online correspondence with a grown woman. I think it's a woman. I can tell it is. <laughs> what should we write? I have a big wiener. I want to poop back and forth. What? <laughs> what does that mean? Like, I'll poop into her butthole, and then she'll poop it back into my butthole and then we'll just keep doing it back and forth with the same poop forever and as part of that attempt to communicate he invents a sort of love emoji comprised of parentheses and chevrons and it's meant to represent two people pooping back and forth into each other's buttholes forever it has its own the know, same poop it has its own romance to it, yeah. That scene and that symbol really took off culturally. Um, I, I want to know a little bit more about how that idea was created and how it feels to now see people walking around with that on shirts and that tattooed on their bodies and it having almost mm -hmm. its, its own life of its own and it's, it's become like a weird Freudian love symbol. <laughs> right. Well, I have to say that was the plan. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, uh, I felt like this, this idea of, of a child sexuality that exists on its own terms, that is not um, about pedophilia or some devastating consequences for the child, um, that that was such a contestable truth to try to be speaking, um, not just sort of legally, but even like, what are you talking about? Children aren't, nothing, sex and children, no, those have to, those don't even exist in the same sphere. And I, I 
I was reading books at that time, you know, sort of the, the birth of the word meme actually was around that same time oh. in the, what was that, that world? It was like, it was a much more, um, it was like 2006, right? I well, feel like I, yeah, I read a book about memes, sort of like how images can carry meaning into the culture, but this is, you know, obviously pre-social media or anything like that. Um, and I thought, oh yeah, that's what this idea needs. It needs like a Nike swoosh, like some kind of symbol <laughs> that that helps carry it and make it seem real, like to give it authority, to give it um, kind of a hook. Um, and so it's very like conscious, like I built that into the movie and made it something that was accessible to anyone, like anyone could recreate that symbol. And I mean, the funny thing is, that that worked <laughs> like it was just my own like thought thing you know it wasn't I I mean I had some confidence but I wasn't I wasn't like a marketing corporation you know what I mean like I was just a woman in Portland who was trying like exploring some ideas so um yeah uh sometimes Sometimes uh, that's powerful. But it's almost exploring some ideas. Yeah, it's irresistible. Yeah, like the poop will stick. Yeah, but also just the idea of like (laughs) having some very innocuous symbols to carry such a such complicated ideas about childhood sexuality and like how it can be okay to think back to the sex lives of ourselves as children and how to um, communicate with others in a sexual way that can also be childlike in its wonder. It's like yeah. a very, it, it does a lot of heavy lifting as a symbol. <laughs> and so I, I imagine right, right. that. Because it's obviously for adults. Yes. It's a symbol that means something to adults. And it is something about intimacy and playfulness and like a secret language. And mm-hmm. it, yeah, I think most people who have, often the people who have it, they have it with someone else, you know? Yeah, like, like a couple's tattoo together. Yeah, um, so that's interesting to me that it's like inherently relational. Yeah, yeah, forever and ever. I know it definitely. The same too. There's a lot of memes out there now, and now with social media, everybody has memes. But that I, it's rare to see one that does the real, the real work that that meme did. Before this, I just posted the the symbols on my Facebook, and I was like throwbacks. And then everybody immediately was like, forever and ever. Aww. Everybody just remember. And I was like, you guys know how old we are. <laughs> that we that resonated for so many years that people immediately were like, yes, yeah, forever and ever. Your creative career and our magazine bust both, both blossomed out of the same DIY riot girl third wave feminist punk situation that was happening in the 90s. It's an era that I cherish. Um, and in many ways, this was considered a kind of creative golden age for young women. At the same time, I noticed at the time, you and I are the same age, um, that many of my cultural heroines at the time were doing some form of sex work to subsidize their creative work. And it was sort of like another armature of their feminism. I know that you spent some time working at a peep show. And I wondered if you think those experiences helped you become somehow more fearless or more comfortable with vulnerability or more brave about personal exposure, having had a job like that. Right. I mean, 
unless unless you really have no other option, um, it tends to be pretty complicated mm -hmm. how you end up in sex work. You know, like there's a lot of different tendrils that you can work out in therapy um, forever, uh, like how you would end up doing like the one thing you're told not to do growing up, which is like take off your clothes in front of a stranger. Um, there was something that you're not wrong. There is something about fearlessness. Like I remember, uh, I remember the conversation in my house, like a, a housemate, unfortunately my girlfriend, cause we had broken up, moved out and me and my friend were kind of left with too much rent to pay. And, um, I remember her saying, well, you know, one of us could strip. Um, and then she said, and I can't cause I wear glasses. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I was like, huh, okay. I don't wear glasses. Um, okay. I guess I'll go do that. And, um, uh, and I went down, uh, to Mary's spot, Mary's place, Mary's spot. Um, very old um, bar. I mean, I didn't work there for very long, but it was like a strip bar. Um, is that what it's called? Strip bar? Um, anyways, and I like, you know, did my audition. And I remember walking out of there feeling like 20 feet tall, mm. just kind of like, it was almost like I took a bullet and I didn't die. And um, I'd been told my whole life that I would, and then I didn't. And um, uh, and that, I think I, you know, I was, the particular way that I was raised, um, I felt pretty vulnerable and pretty um, like, like un unfit to survive most things. Um, and so did I, it, a lot of things I was doing at that time had to do with proving to myself that I actually was quite strong and sort of brave, like that I, I was kind of a daredevil, in fact, you know, um, like I liked doing things um, that where the outcome was really unclear. <laughs> and, uh, and there was you know, a whole bunch of things and a bunch of weird jobs. And, um, and I think eventually all that energy found a home in my work, you know, it was like, well, these things are, you know, they prove that point, but they don't really inspire anyone or me, generally speaking, hmm. um, like in, in a, in like a lasting way, like they don't actually, um, they're not generative. Um, and they may be generating more harm than they're healing, you know, at, at a certain point. Um, and so just bit by bit, I, I, it was just like, almost like I didn't have time to be quite so rebellious in life because I was always writing. I was always working and performing and, you know, like it just, yeah. that shift just kind of happened organically and, um, and financially just, whatever I got, but you know, I had incredibly cheap rent and it was just touch and go for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah.
something else that I love about your work, speaking of things that are being inspiring, things that are generative, it, it really perfectly articulated why we needed the internet before we had it. And then after we had it, your work then evolved to highlight the creative possibilities of the internet that hadn't really been fully explored yet. Pre-internet, you're big, you have this big ongoing project. It started out being called Big Miss Moviola, and then it was later renamed Joni for Jackie. And for listeners who aren't familiar with it, the premise was you sent out a flyer, I think it was in, in a zine, and it said, if you are a female filmmaker, send me your movie and $5, and I will send a compilation tape of 10 lady-made movies, including yours. And over time, 300 um, movies came your way, and they're now all archived at the Getty. Um, and, and then, once we did have the internet, you had an online project with Harold Fletcher called Learning to Love You More, where you posted very specific art assignments and a whole community of thousands of people sprang up around the completion of the art assignments that you were giving out and the sharing of that work. These projects are just as much about amplifying and connecting other artists as they are about you expressing yourself. And I just want to know more about why that's important to you, why amplifying other people and connecting other people and, and creating community like has taken up right. so much of your career when really you could have just focused on getting your own work out there. When young people ask me like, how, you know, how did you get where you are? Like, how should I start? What can I be doing? I always think about Joni for Jackie and think, well, when I started that project, I had not yet made a movie myself. And I was struggling just to think of myself as a filmmaker and in order to do that, I had to create a context for myself. Like that didn't really exist. The, you know, like young women shooting movies, that wasn't a thing. You know, it wasn't like there was a riot girl thing for filmmaking. Like I- Then I you made one. Wanted to, like what you made yeah. became the riot girl thing for filmmaking. There wasn't anything like yeah. it. Right. And, um, and, and I think- my instinct has always been like, in a way, the, the most provocative thing you can do is not just help yourself, but make a whole movement, right? Because that's really strong. Like that will, yes, you will totally benefit from that, but also it's, you're creating an audience for yourself and for other women. You're mm -hmm. creating a way for people to even think about what you're doing and other women are doing, which often is, is a big part of the problem. You know, it's, um, and I never felt that it was enough just to be like, you know, okay, if I'm just fantastic and interesting enough, the people will come, they'll just recognize how amazing <laughs> I am and just come like that. I always understood that that was not that you had to invite people in and for people to be feel invited, they had to feel like it had something to do with them because I'm the same way. Like mm -hmm. I want to, I want to participate. Like I'm um, like, I want to be invited to the party. And I think, so it's not, it's not separate from my work. It was, um, it was like a way of thinking about making art that um, it, in a way was just as like ambitious as anything else. 
I mean, I had colossal, uh, I mean, I, I truly believed that this was like a revolution changing the world. And when I got to Sundance with me and you and everyone we know, and I was one of only two women in competition out of 16, um, they have since really addressed their gender parity issues, you know, more than most festivals. Um, but when I when I realized that we hadn't fixed it, mm, yeah. <laughs> we hadn't like fixed that problem, um, I was kind of shocked. Like I really had been living in this world of my own creation where I was not a minority and I had no reason to be insecure. I was one of hundreds of women filmmakers that I personally knew and corresponded <laughs> with and slept on the couches of. And <laughs> you know, so um, in a way I was as confident as I've ever been at that moment in my filmmaking career, like after that, it kind of dipped down when I became like a participant in a, you know, in a larger, quote unquote, larger, but um, smaller in some ways, uh, Hollywood world. Um, and I guess since then, I've been kind of making my, my way, you know, back to a person who has a context. Is it true? that you somehow got a hold of Roseanne Barr's FedEx number in the 90s and used it to send Joni for Jackie films out all over the place. And if it is true, oh did she ever find out? Well, um, yeah, that's true. It's funny. I mean, <laughs> you know, in that monograph, you you read that in this, this book and I, you know, all my friends and collaborators were interviewed, not by me, um, but for this book and often things would, would um, when I read the transcriptions, there would be these things that I totally forgot about like that, <laughs> that like made me gasp. And I had to decide like, do I include that? Or do I <laughs> protect myself from Roseanne Barr? Um, <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> I even, yeah, that all happened. And no, I mean, I don't know. If she, yeah, well, she's probably going to find a statute right? of limitations. Though. Yeah, I don't think she's going to come for you now. Yeah, probably. And I think it, you know, it's like is good karma for her whether she knew that she was doing it or not that she was subsidizing like the young women making films. Right. Yeah, went to a good cause. Yeah, 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 yeah that's it. <laughs> the Nigerian prince for a good cause. Yeah. When I learned about your career, you've always been sort of contextualized to me as a feminist artist, but I'm not clear on when you decided to claim that for yourself. Like, did you put yourself out as a feminist artist or did people put that on you? And how do you feel about having that sort of appended to your career for all, you know, 20 years? To me, it's just like factual, like I don't, and I've never shied away from it. And it's true that it used to be, I, I mean, I remember in interviews, especially interviews uh, like internationally, people would be like, so I heard you call yourself a feminist. <laughs> What's that Is about? That true, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah. It's like being in Antifa. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. there's nothing. I wish that was more radical, but it, that alone is not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Has your personal relationship to feminism evolved over the course of your career? Or has it always just been steady, like your conception of it? No, I, I think it it evolves 
because you you keep occupying a different place in the culture as you get older you know like you're like what being a feminist means to a teenage girl uh yeah. is different from you know also i mean in some ways i had like a whole like second coming of my understanding of feminism once i became a mom because i was like aha suddenly me as a filmmaker is very, very different than Mike, my husband, as a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Like we're having all of a sudden there's not parity here now that we're both parents. He within himself is not, you know, doesn't have the same intensity of uh, guilt and, um, and, just like lusting after a certain kind of interior freedom. Um, it's, it's a little less hot of a territory mm. and that's great. Like yeah. that's great for a child. But I also, there was a point where like I needed to articulate that, whatever that thing was. And I needed him to say it back to me. Mm -hmm. Like I needed to know he understood. And I remember we even like named it. I was like, I don't want us ever to forget what that, is because that's really messing with me and I can't feel like gaslit or crazy about it because it's very hard to hold on to this like why this is hard for me when it shouldn't be like I'm fine right and like we're fine and yet this is uh almost impossible struggle to be like a full-on mom and a full-on working artist like it's um, I'm back to like square one of feminism, basically. I see. Wow. Or sexism. Yeah. Wow. I so appreciate your time and I so appreciate your work. There's something very special about um, seeing someone making the art that you want to see in the world. Like sometimes it feels like when nobody's making anything that you want to see, it can be very alienating and make you feel like totally outside the culture and like, um, like what's wrong with me that nobody's making things for me. And so whenever you write anything or make any movie or any art, um, I always relate to it in some way, but it just makes me feel like I'm part of the culture again, because I always enjoy it so much. And it feels like it was made just for me and just for people like me and people who have interests that are similar to mine. And that's exactly how um, I felt when I first discovered Bust Magazine. And that's exactly why I've worked for Bust Magazine for 19 years and that's why oh I've followed you for all this time for the same reason of like the feeling of belonging that your work gives to me. I'm so appreciative of you coming on our show um, to talk to me yeah. about it. That's really This sweet. is amazing. That, you know, it's funny. Um, I just, just one little bust thing. Like, of course, bust, like I love bust. Bust was really like key to my, um, like I, had to have been one of the first magazines I was ever in, period. Um, so that was really exciting. Um, but also this, so we have a little house in Northern California in this city called Nevada City, and it has a tiny food co-op. Not tiny, it's a nice food co-op. Um, and they carry magazines and they, they carry bust, um, which is sort of cool. You I know? love it's that. Like, shows you how hip they are. And, um, and so we're always there like on vacation and I'm like 
you know, usually working, working and my husband is like trying to encourage me to chill out. And he always buys me a bust. And that's like, um, (laughs) that's like him saying like, honey, just, just relax. You know, like we are now taking a break and it's, it's become like a kind of Pavlovian, like, like, okay, we're here. There's the copy of bust. Like it's, such a, I love a sweet that. thing. I love yeah. it so much. And I have to tell you in the book, in the, in the Miranda July book, when there was that sheet of paper from when you were trying to get um, publicity for Joni for Jackie, and then you had the list of the different magazines that you were going to contact and bomb was on the top and then bust was right under it. And you had Marcel's name next to it. And I was like, fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. Beginning. Like aspirations. Yeah. I hope we called you back. Yeah. I know that we we've called you back yeah. many times oh. since that day. <laughs> yeah, very long, sweet relationship. Well, thank you again so much for being on our show. Uh, we have yeah. loved having you, and uh, we're gonna take the briefest of breaks. And when Callie and I are gonna come back, we're gonna ask each other what you watch it. Before we get back to the show. I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes. And tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious. And I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google Calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have docket. We all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. (laughs) Scams. I'm Caitlin Bradley Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Which Amazing. Was so smart. I mean, so like smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Hello. Callie, we just had the most amazing convo with art legend Miranda July. Amazing. Wasn't that something? Legend. And now Back we're and actually forth forever and ever. I know. It, I felt like the I could same talk her poop. Back and forth <laughs> forever and ever. Um, 
now we are actually surprised joined by an entirely different guest and here's how it all went down as part of our patreon incentive program which actually should be called matreon because every (laughs) single one of our donors has been a woman thank you very much ladies um every one of our matrons um there are different uh subscriber levels and at the highest subscriber level you get to have a zoom chat with callie and i and so our next guest is one of those very generous matrons who subscribed via patreon at the highest level and since we were scheduling a zoom chat that she so richly deserved anyway we thought why not have her on what you're watching and make her part of the show so now without further ado our benefactress <laughs> Lori Michinello. thank you so much ladies for having me um i'm a thank you for oh, of course i'm a huge fan i love hearing you in my ear holes every week well, almost every week, <laughs> you know, basically you're my pop culture Sherpas. So, you know, my whatcha watching is going to sound a little familiar in some contexts, <laughs> but overall, I love, I love it. I love your guests. I love how you ask them questions. I'm super excited to support you both. And thank you for having me. We appreciate I feel very you. What was so, your favorite, so uh, favorite uh, whatcha watching? suggestion oh my goodness oh now you're putting me on the spot um (laughs) well actually what's funny callie is i am watching something you recommended (laughs) just just last night i was watching it which was cobra kai i believe it was you but that was like nine months ago maybe a year ago it was on whatever station or thing i do not subscribe youtube originally yes so but i think you had to have like the youtube subscription for it and i wasn't that much of a super user of youtube too old for that. What's something weird? Yeah. Sure. So I think you need another. <laughs> so I don't know if I would say that was my favorite, but that is the one that, for some reason, circled back into my brain. But you know, I still have to do the dark shadows. I'm waiting, Emily. I know it's it's <laughs> it like it yeah. needs me to be sick and not functional on my computer, so I can <laughs> then look at my TV without distraction because I basically watch and listen to everything while I work. So it, it, you have to remove me from my house to actually like consume art in a healthy and good way. <laughs> so that's the situation I'm in right now. So now we are at the part of the program where we ask each other what you're watching. And as is our custom, we would like to ask our guest first. So our kind benefactress, Lori <laughs> Mucciolo, what you watching? So um, basically if someone's been murdered... I've seen it. That's pretty much the motto in my household. So I know you don't just count TV. I haven't been watching as much TV, although my in front of TV time has been, you know, obviously we're all trapped in front of it lately. But I'd say podcasts is where my heart has been lately. So yeah, I'm in the middle of a couple of crime podcasts. One is amazing called Relative Unknown. And it's about this woman who was a child of a health angels biker who decided to go into the witness protection program and kind of oh, rat out yeah. all of his biker friends um, oh, after shit. killing somebody. Yeah. The, and uh, basically they went straight into witness protection program, like straight up, like the kids had no idea what was happening. Stormtroopers, like not stormtroopers, but, but their house was stormed by, <laughs> that would be much funnier though. <laughs> but uh, yeah. 
but they were like taken away in the middle of the night into a hotel and she basically broke her witness protection cover to tell oh, the no. story um as she's an adult she's in her 40s now um and but but basically it starts off with a man killing himself in in a uh truck in front of his house after setting his house on fire and they realize there are two dead bodies who is his son-in-law not stepson and his second wife and then it kind of unravels that not only did he do that but he has this whole crazy like life and witness protection and then it's told by his daughter and he apparently wrote a book at some point and stored it and they found it so they have all this amazing they have this amazing voice actor who comes in and reads parts of it as if it were him they also have a part like because he was in a famous biker gang so they literally have all the audio from his trial um before he went to witness protection it's so Tell me again the name of the it's show. It's called Relative Unknown. But it's a podcast, right? Wow. It's a podcast, yeah. Yeah. So that one I'm listening to right now. Another one's Morally Indefensible, which is about the same time period. It's about this guy who's charged with murdering his entire family, but claims that on like this band of like like hippie gypsies who storm his house and just remembers a woman in a big floppy hat. So anyway, that was fascinating. <laughs> Um, apparently got, it had like a mini series in the eighties. It was like this big case I've never heard of. So that's really interesting. Um, what else? Um, I just listened to 1916 on a more serious note because I'm trying to be somewhat of a decent human instead of just listening to murder. Oh, you mean 1619? 1619. I wrote it down backwards correctly. Thank you. <laughs> um, that would be a very different podcast, but <laughs> Yeah. Both very auspicious yes. years, but for different yes. reasons. And that was yeah. that was very enlightening and wonderful. I highly recommend it. Um, and then, yeah, I'm that. And I guess the last one would be how I built this. I'm always listening to that, which is sort of like the hustle of building a business from scratch. Um, because you are building a I'm business trying, from scratch. I'm trying. What is your business, Lori Michiello? <laughs> Funny you should say my name, <laughs> because that is my business. Um, I am a emerging fashion designer, um, and I'm trying to sell things people don't need right now, <laughs> but hopefully will need later. Yeah, um, people always need fashion. Always need fashion. Some people yeah. get yeah. dressed to, to, in their house because they just want yeah. to feel better. Exactly. So, I'm not yes. one, as long as there's Instagram, people will need I'm fashion. I'm not one of those people, but I do miss getting dressed, but I'm not yeah. about to do it just to sit in my house. And neither am I. So, you know, I think that that's. It's an interesting time for fashion, so it'll it's not going to change overall the fact that I'll do it, but I definitely it's fascinating to kind of think about, oh, what would you do? And now looking at the way the world really is in reality, what do people actually need and how do you fit yourself and your brand and your point of view into that? So that's What's on the mind a lot like? lately. What's the aesthetic? <laughs> it is unabashed, bold expression Basically, it's not for the shrinking violet. It's for the, like the person who wants to be the person everyone sees in the room. Uh, I want it to be clothing items that essentially stand the test of time in your closet because they're not really bound by fad. But they're they're very expressive. So you can kind of, you know, you wouldn't wear it every Monday to your meeting at work, but you'd probably wear it, you know, never like, oh, that coat you have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love exactly. it. Exactly. I yeah. have a lot of this stuff. I do. I do have seen you in that. <laughs> no, Lori, since you. you like, since you like true crime yeah. podcasts, did you ever listen to the Ballad of Billy Balls? No, I have not. 
I recommend it to you. The host of that program, Io Tillett Wright, is going to be on this very podcast in the future. Um, so listen to it now so you can be excited awesome. when Io comes on later. I'm very excited. I, I am looking for a new one. I'd say the best one I've listened to in the last handful. Oh, there's so many good ones. But the um, Root of Evil is really good. And that is told from the half-sibling of the Hodels, like the children of the Hodels, who is basically the mad, like, crazy doctor guy who um, was one of the suspects in the Black Dahlia. And his oh, own son oh, wow. uh, is a detective, an L.A. detective. I think he's retired now. But he actually really believes his father killed the Black Dahlia and has built a case over years against his own dad. So it's told by his one of his half-siblings. Um, and I can't remember. I think – or maybe it's not the half-siblings. It might be his niece. But either way, it's family that didn't really grow up in the L.A. part, kind of just going back in and telling the whole story. It's fascinating wow so he's not actually accused of it but but the hotels feel like he actually did it i love it yeah super they would know yeah callie i gotta know and i need to know (laughs) what you're watching um let's see uh teenage bounty hunters (laughs) i heard about that we talked lydia was talking about it and i had tried to watch it before and i thought it was like Republican pro gun bullshit <laughs> propaganda show because there was it's like two twins and they're like go to a Catholic school or, or or some religious school and they're they have parents got them guns they everybody owns guns it's that kind of culture it's a reality show right no. oh it's a comedy I thought it was really about teenage bounty no, hunters it's oh it's a comedy yeah. okay and um, Method Man is in it. Oh. Yeah. And it, it's pretty good. It's really funny. So it's like these twins and they're like navigating, losing their virginity and uh, being maybe being queer and religion. And then they fuck their dad's car up and have to raise money and end up being bounty hunters. <laughs> <laughs> it's really because funny. Of course. <laughs> of course. And it's actually like, isn't. There's a lot of comedy around like overly religious people in it, so I like that part. And then, what what platform is it on? Netflix. Okay. Um, but there is the whole like the bounty hunter that um, is mentoring them is falls very much into the like magical uh, savior black friend type thing, and it's mm-hmm. like a it's like this tough kind of quiet solo bounty hunter that has a soft spot for these two twins it's so, so that's a little ridiculous <laughs> the rest of it is good um and then i watched unpregnant on hbo mm-hmm. which is an abortion road trip comedy mm-hmm. and it was really it was good it was funny it's a two it's like this girl gets pregnant even though she was using a condom she's in high school i think she's 17 parents are super religious a lot of super religious things going on now um and they she gets pregnant and tells her old best friend well her old best friend actually finds out and then they go on a road trip from missouri to new mexico because so she can get an abortion without telling her parents it's good 
Yeah, I remember reading about that and being like, that sounds fun. Yeah, it was busty as fuck. Um, <laughs> and then I saw Coastal Elites on HBO. Mm-hmm. That's Issa Rae, right? Oh, it, it was like, it's five different people and they all do, it's like a, they're doing monologues about the pandemic and about Trump. And, the, and Bette Midler is in it. She's so good. Nice. Bette Midler is great. She's the first one in it. And then, um, but they play characters. Yeah, right? they're, they're playing characters, themselves. but it's just them practice like saying a monologue, like they're auditioning for something or something like that. Mm-hmm. And Issa Rae, her character and her monologue's name is Callie. Obviously, based on you. Clearly, who else? And in that um, monologue, the character, the Callie character, meets Ivanka Trump. It's really good. <laughs> I definitely suggest watching that. And that is what I've been watching. Excellent. And you? I was hoping you'd ask. Well, I'll tell you, Callie. I've been kind of down in the dumps lately. And as a way to, like, zhuzh myself up, I started rereading one of my favorite books from the 90s, which is a a self-help book called The Artist's Way, A Spiritual Path to Higher Creativity, by Julia Cameron. It's this book that was written to help people with like artistic creative recovery. This book obviously was not written during COVID <laughs> or quarantine times. So I've been seeking out live streamed events so I can like gather with others safely and engage in the lively arts um, while maintaining a healthy social distance. So um, the first, one of the first things that I did is I attended a virtual art lecture called Unhung Heroes of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Ooh. And it focused on the it focused on the many penises in the museum's permanent I love collection. it. Here it was so it good. <laughs> there was a live lecture that we all attended and we attended on Zoom so like we could ask questions. Did you have a stuff. favorite penis? Oh, yeah, you know what? The, I'm so glad you asked. There is, it's interesting actually because this is something that I'd never seen before. Um, even though I've been to the museum many times, there's this famous statue. It's a Rodin, August Rodin statue of like a very beautiful youth, sort of posing nude and bronze. And I'd seen that many times, and and um, you know appreciated his form. However, as part of the lecture, the uh, expert who's a professor named Andrew Lear who's a classicist he was leading the tour and he was very zesty and um, kept it interesting and entertaining throughout he um, as part of the lecture showed us um, an old photograph of the artist's model that Rodin had um, photographed and this was you know from early photography this is like you know a beautiful like Degura type picture of this hot hot oh so hot french man nude standing contraposta and like he actually i guess this photo circulated because like he was accused of just like casting a person's body and then just using that cast to make a a a statue a sculpture and he used the reference photo to show that like he actually just used it as reference and he used his own artistic inspiration for the photo. Like they are not exact copies of one another, but the photograph of the artist model is one of the hottest things (laughs) I've ever seen in my life. And um, 
I'm it's probably in I haven't gone all the way through it because I I went to the lecture the first time but if you're interested in seeing the many wieners of the Metropolitan Museum of Art um this the highlights from this lecture are on a YouTube show that Professor Lear has called Sexy Secrets of Great Art and episode 4 is Unhung Heroes you can find it on YouTube right now um, and the last thing that I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page that is matronized by our guest, Lori Mucciolo. And if you want to be super cool and amazing like she is, perhaps you would like to become one of our Patreon matrons as well. We really need your help to keep Bust alive. And hopefully you'll be excited by the goodies that we've hooked up for our listeners at patreon.com slash Podcast. Callie and I have been typing up show notes exclusively for patrons that include links to every single thing that everyone has been watching for all 93 episodes of this show. Everything that everybody said that they're watching, there's a link to it. So if you have just like completely exhausted your Netflix queue and you're still in quarantine and you're like, what the fuck? This is the donor level that you want to join on because... We've got it. We've got the hookup for you. You could know about the next Cobra Kai. Mm-hmm. You can know about the next <laughs> Cobra Kai. We've also got totally ad-free episodes, and there's exclusive content in there, including an amazing episode we did with Big Frida. Um, please check it out at patreon.com slash Podcast. It would make us so happy to have you join us in the inner circle. <laughs> and, of you. course... Yeah, this this could be you. Watch this space. <laughs> and thanks to our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. <laughs> Muy caliente, Logan. <laughs> and, of course, our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily. Lori Mucciolo, where can people find you on the socials? Uh, personal Instagram, Lori Mucciolo, brand Instagram, uh, Muchillo brand. I'm not on Twitter. I technically have one, but I just basically voyeuristically look at what you like. Same. Um, most of the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's basically what happens there. And you cannot follow Callie on social media, so just don't even. <laughs> I try. tried to Twitter. You... I just don't care. Um, I will tell you that you can email both Callie and I'm. I'm at emilyramsatbus.com. CallieWatbus.com. Finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time, we did it, you guys. I think it's a woman. I can tell it is. (laughs) What should we write? I have a big wiener. I want to poop back and forth. What? (laughs) What does that mean? Like, I'll poop into her butthole, and then she'll poop it back into my butthole. And then we'll just keep doing it back and forth with the same poop forever.